it's very important to train women because God calls both women and men. It's as simple as that. I remember the story of one woman who was burning with passion to serve the Lord and she reportedly asked her church leaders, what do I do with this gift of the Holy Spirit? It's not given for me to cook food, you know. So this gift comes from the Holy Spirit. The calling comes from God and women as much as men should be equipped in the way to use their their gift. My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai Equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve. On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as Global Ambassador and Ministry Director for Langham. Today, we go to Ethiopia and Chris's conversation with two groundbreaking women God is using to lift up the church there. Sebla Daniel is the first female to receive a PhD in Bible and theology in her denomination, the largest in Ethiopia. With the platform of her PhD, she trains even more biblical leaders at the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology. And, at the invitation of the government, she is involved in helping educate communities about ending female genital mutilation. They are joined by Tigist, one of Sebla's students, who is taking what Sebla taught her and using it to disciple Ethiopia's next generation. Their conversation covers a lot of ground, from the history of Christianity in Ethiopia, to the issues facing the church today, and what is needed for the church to impact the surrounding culture. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to On Mission, with me, Chris Wright, and today we head to Africa, and that wonderful, beautiful, and ancient country of Ethiopia. And I'm delighted to have two guests for you to meet today, two wonderful women from the capital city of Ethiopia, that is Addis Ababa. First of all, Dr. Seble Daniel. Seble is a Langham scholar. She's the head of academic affairs at the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology, or EGIST, as we usually call it. Uh, And she also teaches there. She's a professor of practical theology and Ethiopian church history. So welcome to you, Seble. Thank you, Chris. And my second guest is one of Dr. Seble's students there at EGIST or the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology, as I said. Her name is Tigist, Tigist Galagli. Tigist's background is in economics, and she now works for an NGO there in Ethiopia, and is also very active in discipling and mentoring young people in her church. So welcome to you, Tigist. Thank you, Chris. Now, let's uh, begin, as we usually do, just finding out a little bit about your, your background and your journey to where you are today. So perhaps uh, beginning with you, Dr. Sebley, you would just introduce yourselves a little bit, perhaps, about how you came to faith and how God prepared you for the ministry you now have. Okay. Thank you, Chris. I was born and raised in a Christian family in, uh, in the rural part of Ethiopia, in the um, southern part of Ethiopia. Uh, When I was 14, my parents decided to move myself and my older sister to Addis Ababa for a better education. So we moved to Addis uh, and lived with our uh, paternal uncle. 
So I, I studied um, in Addis uh, as well, but I still consider myself as a village girl because I spent my formative years in, in the rural part of Ethiopia. And I, uh, I am a member of the Ethiopian Kalihiwat Church, which is the largest evangelical denomination in Ethiopia. And I, um, I served since my childhood in that church. And um, I also later in life served as the um, um, chair of women uh, and uh, later on as deputy chair of women. And now I serve at Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology. Uh, I am married and we have uh, three beautiful children. Now I serve as the head of academic affairs at EGST. At EGST. And, and what are the ages of your children? You have, I think you have two sons and a daughter, is that right? Yes, yes. I have two sons and a daughter. My, our first son is 15 and the second one is 12 and our daughter is uh, 7. So you know all about what it is to be a wife and a mother and a teacher and uh, all the work that you do and juggle all those things. Yeah, we'll come back yeah. to that in a minute. Thank you, thank you. So Tigis, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Chris. Um I was born and grew up in Addis, the capital city. Uh, I'm the second of the three girls. Um, I'm in the middle. And I also grew up with a Christian family. And my mom um, was a teacher and my dad used to work for the government office. Uh, and then I studied um, in Addis Ababa as well. Um, I, my first degree was in global studies and international relations. And I did my master's in economic development at Addis Ababa University. And I felt like, um, because I, I love to read books and I keep on reading a lot of mainly philosophical and, you know, books that start to challenge my faith. So I decided and then I moved to study theology and then I joined Agust to study postgraduate diploma. And then I totally fall in love with theology and then I started to continue to study my master's. And then in the meantime, um, I just saw Dr. Sabila there, and she gave me class. That was also my another highlight to continue uh, my theology. So I'm pretty much inspired by that. Part of that, it really helps me with my ministry, and also it, it helps me to grow up uh, in, in the faith in Christ. It's not just religion, but, um, you know, I, it really helps me to be really anchored on the solid foundation. So that also helps me to empower and mentor young people so that they can be strong in their faith in Christ. It's not just religion that we're following, just a lifestyle change. So um, mm. that's how uh, I've been exploring and then working with the young people, um, especially that was really my greatest inspiration while studying theology. The, we said that you work for an NGO in Ethiopia. Can you tell us a little bit about that and which one it is and, and what exactly it is that it does and that you do? Sure. Um, after um, after I graduated, um, I got uh, an internship position at the UN in New York and I worked there for a while. And then after I came back, I joined a Canadian NGO that mainly works in uh, uh, economic development. Um, I used to enjoy working there because we are literally fighting economic injustices in one way. And then after that, I joined Cure International. Cure Ethiopia works for um, giving orthopedic surgery for children for free, uh, especially for those who are unfortunate to pay because it's really expensive to have orthopedic surgery in Ethiopia. So it was quite an amazing work that Cure is really working in Ethiopia. So, And then I joined um, AO Alliance was funding the, the Cure Ethiopia Education Program, which is like mainly supporting, educating surgeons so that they can give better service for the community. Most of the surgeons are from the government hospitals. So I'm just overseeing their project in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. I work part-time for them. That's a very practical job and uh, I should think yeah. a very demanding and intensive job as well. And you're mixing all that in with your theology. So I want to <laughs> hear the connection in a little while. Um, but Seble and Tigis, let's let's go to Ethiopia. Well, you're there already, um, and I've only had the the privilege of visiting Ethiopia twice in recent years. Loved it. Unfortunately, didn't get much further into the country than Addis and and some nearby surroundings. But 
tell us something about your own country. Perhaps, first of all, tell us where it is. We know it's in Africa, but Africa is a very large continent. Tegus, uh, do you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> um, Ethiopia is located in the Horn, the Horn of Africa. Uh, it's um, neighboring countries, Somalia, Eritrea, North Sudan, South Sudan, a little bit of Kenya. Um, we're a landlocked country. Uh, but we're really rich in history. Um, our Christian religion goes back to the fourth century. Um, uh, one thing that fascinates me about my country is we have our own script uh, mm-hmm. and also we have our own calendar. We're in the year 2013 now. Um, and then, yeah, we count the day when we say one in the morning. Uh, we don't count it midnight. We start when the sun rises. That's where the day starts in Ethiopia. <laughs> so we have a very funny way of uh, counting when you travel with international people. We have an amazing food. I hope, Chris, you tried that. We have a little bit. Oh, of I did. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's a very I love the food. Feeling. Yeah, I love my food. Whenever I travel, that's something I always miss because it's spicy. Yeah, that's pretty much us. <laughs> so I really can add. Yeah, yeah, uh, thank you. Maybe I would add uh, two or three things. We have more than 80 ethnic groups. It's a diverse country. The color of our skin is also diverse. Sometimes people think all Ethiopians are light-skinned and have softer hair, but we are so diverse. Another thing people may not realize about Ethiopia is that it's actually the second largest country in Africa, isn't it, in terms of population? It's uh, 115 million is what I read, uh, second only to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and it's uh, it's a large country, of course. It's about one and a half times larger than Texas, just for some of our listeners to get a sense of the, the, the relative size of the country. And of course, the name Ethiopia uh, comes in the Bible. I mean, is modern Ethiopia basically the same as biblical Ethiopia? Um, maybe not. I'm sure you know uh, the, the the modern Ethiopia is much smaller than the Ethiopia in the Bible. I think the Ethiopia in the Bible uh, was uh, larger. Uh, but because the name Ethiopia is in, in the Bible, uh, we take that as uh, very precious and, and special. Just like the people of Egypt have the same sense <laughs> of affection that their country is there in the Bible, and of course others in the Middle East, of course. Yes, I, I think the uh, the view is that Ethiopia was the general Greek word for more or less everything south of Egypt. Um that is the great civilizations of Nubia and Kush and what we would now call Sudan and doubtless also parts of what is the modern state of Ethiopia. But it's just interesting that that part of Africa uh, was well known right down there, even in, even in biblical times. So you obviously love your country. You love the food. Uh, you love the coffee. Your country went through some quite hard times uh, in the not so distant past under communist government. Do you want to say anything about that and how the church survived that era? Um, yes, um, we were young back then, but we know we know the history. During the communist regime, churches were uh, closed, um, especially evangelical churches were closed, and Christians were persecuted. Some even lost their lives. Um, and reading the Bible was banned, singing was banned, worship was banned. So it was a rough time uh, for the church. So um, Christianity went underground. So um, Christians started meeting in small groups um, and smuggling Bible. But the church grew immensely during the the communist regime um, and during those uh, persecution years uh, because of this, the nature of the, the church, the closeness and and uh, meeting in um, individual homes that helped the church. So the church grew immensely. Um, and, and when we emerged uh, after the, uh, the communist regime fell, again, we were able to see how large Christian body has become, how, how the church had grown. And then after a few years, we started to see uh, problems because during those years, uh, the church was not properly uh, prepared to handle uh, 
the vast majority of converts and people who came during the Derg regime, uh, the communist regime, we call it the Derg, um, came to the church. Some of them came from the communist uh, party, some were converted from this party. And because the church didn't have strong Bible schools to train people when the, um, the regime ended and when we came out of the persecution, and then we started to see the problem with discipleship, um, the uh, generation gap between the older years and the younger ones. And also as the church had uh, found much more freedom, uh, false teachings started to come from outside of Ethiopia. So that's when we started to see problems problems which came as a result of our numerical growth and as a result of us being less prepared to handle the growth. Tigist might want to add to that. Well, I was going to say, Tigist, uh, you, of course, are of a, a younger generation who would not have lived through that era, but uh, you are serving and ministering to that new generation who, uh, I mean, Knowing something of the history of Eastern Europe, for example, there is also a generational problem between younger folks who never knew the communist era and the older generation who struggled through it, suffered through it, endured it. And I just wonder whether you come across any of that kind of uh, reality in your work with younger people. Yeah, uh, you just you just point a very good point because we have we have a very rich history and we have this bigger you know, story to tell, and yet we failed to continue what makes us big. And we failed to do all those values that our forefathers um, carry. Um, so whenever we celebrate those historical moments, or uh, like Sabla said, when we appreciate our forefathers for keeping our Christianity to now, but one of the things we, I think the new generation start to forget is the price that was paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the values they paid and the values they passed through and the moral excellence they used to have in order to pass through those painful moments. And one of the things that I start to observe even the church and outside the church, I would say it's almost the same, is people start to be like, you know, in the Bible, there are honorable things that you need to keep and there are cheap things. I feel like the, the younger generation is more glorifying the cheapest things and forgetting about the honorable things. Mm. And then, you know, one of the things that we pass through such a story, whenever I read the story, whenever I hear, I heard those kind of stories, it just gives me an energy, you know, to, mm. to resist whatever temptation I'm passing through. But that's not the case with the younger generation. And, mm. you know, as a postmodern society and the young generations, a post-Christian society, most young people, they just don't want to pass through pain and they just don't want to suffer and they just want to do whatever they want. And I'm, I'm afraid that we have such an amazing story and amazing history in the church and also in the country, but the younger generation failed to understand how that story happened. You know, it's not just the story that you read it. It's just people sacrifice their life. Our father, our foremother sacrifice, and we tend to forget that. Yeah. Yeah, as you say, one of the things, of course, that I heard that uh, Ethiopian folk are very, in a sense, rightly proud of uh, is the fact that the country was never never suffered a, a colonial era mm-hmm. uh, or colonial domination such as many of the other African countries did, I think apart from a brief period of Italian uh, in- involvement. But is that still something the country feels is important in its identity, that uh, almost uniquely in, in Africa, it, it never went through the, the sort of all the, um, the privations and struggles of colonialism? I don't know whether, Sebley, that's something you would like to comment on. Yes, thank you. Actually, we just celebrated 125th year of um, Victory Day, uh, where we defeated uh, Italian um, um Army, uh, yes, we're proud of our history. We are really proud of it. But then, on the other hand, we also have internal conflict. Yeah. Yes, and um, we accuse one another of occupying territory, you know, and this internal um, settled internal uh, um, 
movement from place to place. So that, in a sense, is bringing conflict among ourselves. So because of that, I'm not sure we are able to celebrate as much as uh, we should have. Sometimes we fail to see the impact of um, us not being colonized because we we have an identity, a unique kind of identity, confidence, and uh, that unique heritage because of what our ancestors have done, uh, the price they have paid uh, with their lives and all. But we kind of fail to appreciate that. We are looking more inward now. We the, There's internal strife. And yeah. yeah, because we have more than 80 ethnic groups, this mobility groups from place to place and mm. occupying land and all. Now we are not standing as one nation. We are more divided by the day. And we want to claim a certain land as belonging to this and that ethnic group. And we want to push the other. So the the embrace and standing together, which helped us to defeat Italian uh, force, uh, is being uh, weakened, I would say. Yes. So that's what, as you said earlier, uh, Ethiopia is a country of many tribal groups, of course, some uh, much larger than others, uh, you, you know, the Amhara and the Oromo. Um, but then there were higher hopes, weren't they, more recently with uh, the, the present prime minister, uh, Abiy Ahmed, uh, even winning a Nobel Peace Prize for his, his efforts. Uh, and then the, the, the present struggles, which, of course, do make the news headlines even in the West of the struggles in Tigray. I mean, have you any sense of um, hope or a future? Or is the church making a response to this? Or is it the case that, as, as in many parts of the world, sometimes the church is as much part of the problem as a solution to the problem? I just don't know. Mm. Um, I would say both. Um, we kind of expected this uh, to come because we knew... Um, we were, I think we were caught between two things. One of the things is equality between all ethnic groups, which is a salutary thing uh, for no other ethnic group to feel superior and the others uh, feel superior. Uh, but again, because we didn't work on things which would unite us as a nation, but we focused on uh, things which uh, make us unique, our language, our culture, you know, the language and culture of each ethnic group. Uh, I think we kind of worked on one aspect and left the other. So that's what we are now um, mm. paying for. And on the other hand, I also worry that at times the church is also part of the, the problem because, as you know, um, we come from different ethnic groups and depending on what ethnic group come from, Sometimes we see conflict in the church. Some of us support, uh, you know, this loyalty to our own ethnic group is there because we are fallen as well. So um, at times I worry that the church is not um, standing her ground as a peacemaker, as, uh, as the Church of Christ, which has an identity which should govern all other identities, ethnic identity, all other identities should be governed by our Christian identity. Tigist, do you feel that uh, your generation and the kind of work that you're doing with younger people can be helping to overcome those kind of ethnic divisions? Or is it different in a, a big urban city like Addis as from the more rural areas? What, what's your perception? Um, just to add a little bit on the previous point, uh, the new policy, which is the ethnocentric policy, was the major policy that used to run the country. But the problem is like Sabla said, um, it was, I would say intentionally was done that we, we don't have to call ourselves Ethiopian, rather just to focus on who I am as an ethnic, um, with my ethnicity, not as a nation. So that, that, that has been preached for the last 27 years. And then imagine a young person was born during that time now is 27 years old that's the whole everything that they know so even the, the late prime minister who passed away never called the country ethiopia i just keep saying the country he never called ethiopia so you can imagine what kind of things has been running in the minds of the younger generation the economy is another issue so imagine a 27 years old 
graduates but no job. Unemployment is high, skyrockets in the country, and poverty is rampant. Imagine, so like economic problem always goes to political problem. So those are the things that we have. So whenever I travel, um, I manage to travel almost all parts of the country because of youth ministry and also my work. So unanimously, you really see a very devastated, um, hopeless and visionless young people, I would say. Uh, and also we have um, more than 70% of the population, 70% of the population is under the age of 30, 30, you can imagine. So like, if we are divided beyond words, especially the younger generation, mm-hmm. if you cross, like Sabla yeah. said, when you cross from one region to another region, it was even difficult for me to communicate because we don't have one language at all now. So, you know, unless you communicate, you cannot come together even to to teach them about God and you have to have, you know, that common understanding. Plus, we start to hate each other because the government used to preach, especially the, the TPLF. I'm not against or supporting them, but the fact they have been preaching that this ethnic group has been, you know, um, killing you. This ethnic group has been looting you. Imagine a, a young person listening and growing up for 27 years about hatred. Um, Dr. Abi came and started to preach about love. 27 versus two years, you can imagine. It's not that easy to come to a consensus. But as a Christian, I'm still hopeful because uh, we still yeah. have a power because love yeah. is more stronger than hate. Yeah. So if like the church stand up and aggressively preach love, especially among the younger generation and embrace them. If the church is the only hope for the Ethiopian, for the kids that we're here in Ethiopia. So like, I see hope at the same time, I'm a little bit frustrated that the church is not as as active as it has to be, you know, and the church leaders are still, I'm sorry to say that, but have to be honest, they are really in the bureaucracy and the politics of church, they are not really even focused on the younger generation, which is really the majority, you know. So that's like, I'm like struggling between, you know, I have to, I have to serve, but at the same time, you feel like you're, yeah. you're just clapping in one hand. Kind yes. of thing. But thank you for that. That's tremendously honest, but hopeful. And, and what I love is that you do have hope because the future belongs to the kingdom of God ultimately and therefore Christians are people of hope even in the midst of trauma and disaster and of course in a country like Ethiopia coming to the Christian reality there um, the sheer hope of the fact that the church has been there since New Testament times and is still there uh, is in itself a fact of the faithfulness of God so I wonder whether we could come to something of the religious landscape of the country and one of the facts that, of course, always astonishes me is that uh, Bishop Frumentius, who uh, was the pioneer and missionary in, in the ancient kingdom of Axum, was there uh, converting the king and the people in the 4th century, around about somewhere about 350 AD. And I come from Ireland, as you probably know, and that is a 100 years before the gospel reached Ireland under St. Patrick. Uh, so here we have a, a, a Christian presence there in Ethiopia going right, right back, and of course possibly going right back to the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Uh, and the other lovely thing is that Bishop Frumentius uh, came from the Middle East. He was actually Syrophoenician, came from Lebanon, uh, and uh, there brought the, the gospel to that part of the world. But things are different today. What What is the Christian complexity there in Ethiopia in terms of major churches and denominations and so on. Perhaps, Sebli, you could give us a little bit of information to understand. Uh, Thank you. Yes, um, we have ancient Christianity. We are um, so proud of our Christian heritage. Um, The ancient Orthodox um, Church has more than 43% of the population. And this church is an authentic indigenous church, a beautiful church um, with beautiful tradition, um, authentic Ethiopian um, church. Uh, And we have about 20% of the population evangelical. 
Unfortunately, um, we don't get along uh, many times because uh, when evangelical Christianity came uh, to Ethiopia, um, the first organized evangelical attempt was to uh, revitalize the Orthodox Church. So the Church Missionary Society recognized the Ethiopian Orthodox Church as the church in Ethiopia. Um, and, and because of that, when churches were planted um, outside of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, there was conflict because the Ethiopian Orthodox Church sees itself as the church in Ethiopia and all other uh, forms of Christianity as uh, imported and foreign. So because of that history, we have we had, have had conflict with the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, but things are um, improving and we are learning to get along, even though there are still some areas which we should be working at. Uh, from the side of the evangelicals, we have to uh, give recognition to this ancient historic church side of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, we also need yeah. to be recognized as as uh, a legitimate uh, church. So that yeah, that should be worked on, um, and and we have to learn to appreciate this ancient heritage. One thing I would say is, evangelicals most of the time don't um, go all the way back to to the church fathers, but we kind of um, connect ourselves to the reformation. And because of that, because we are not good at knowing our history, how connected we are to the ancient church, which goes all the way back to the first century, that creates a gap between us and the, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church followers. And also the way we worship, our worship style, the time of worship and all resembles the Western evangelical churches that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church that's also a point of conflict. Hmm. That must be something that you, as a, a student and a teacher of church history, will be trying to get your students to be more aware of, of their own, the history of the church, not just of, uh, of evangelicalism per se. You mentioned that uh, you are a member of the Kale Haywood Church, which is the largest Protestant denomination. What do those words actually mean, Kale Haywood? Alehiwet means word of life. Okay. And uh, so that's the word of life church, Kalehiwet. But there's also other denominations. I've heard of the Makanda Yesu church. Yes. Ethiopian Evangelical Church Makanda Yesu. Actually, it was the first evangelical church in Ethiopia. And we also have Pentecostal churches like uh, Ethiopian Muluangel Church. And we have... Um, Meserata Christos Church, which has its origin in the Mennonite uh, tradition. Uh, we have so many evangelical churches. Mm. And tell me a little bit then about theological education in the country. And I know that you are a teacher and Tigris, you're a student. Um, but the, I'm afraid I only know of two or three of the colleges which I've visited. One is the uh, Evangelical Theological College, the more undergraduate one that you teach at. And then, of course, EGIS, the graduate level, Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology. Um, are there others? And what is, the, what is the state of theological education, would you say, in the country? Yeah, um, during the Derg regime, the Bible schools were not able to operate openly. My church had Bible schools, um, but we didn't have uh, undergraduate, I mean, like colleges or uh, postgraduate schools. Because of that, um, formal evangelical education um, is not as developed as the rest of Africa and the rest of uh, the world. But in uh, Evangelical Church Mechanisus, the Mechanisus Seminary has a long history. It has been functioning for a long time. And the, the theological colleges have been training, um, but we used Western curriculum. And because of that, still we are working on, um, on making our curriculum more indigenous um, and more closer to our culture and tradition. But because our curriculum was more or less imported from, from the Western context, it unfortunately created a gap between us and the church 
So the students we train, I think Tegus will tell you more about it. Sometimes they struggle to take what the, the training they acquire from us and to make the connection between the training and the actual ministry uh, they are engaged in. So we are still working, working on that, but the fruit is big. I would say theological education is uh, making an impact on the Ethiopian uh, church, uh, helping the, uh, e equipping the saints uh, and also producing uh, ministers for, mm -hmm. for the Ethiopian church. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and you yourself are a Langham scholar um, and we have three wonderful women Langham scholars at the moment doing their PhDs in the UK, as you know, all from Egist, uh, and presumably going back to teach there with uh, Meron and Fanos and Sofinit. But um, Sebla, you yourself, and thinking of that principle of the, the needs of the indigenous church and of connecting the gospel to the culture, you yourself chose to do your PhD actually in Africa. You went to Ghana from East Africa to West Africa uh, to do your PhD there in the Akrofi Kristaller Institute. Why did you choose to do that? And, and what did you do your doctorate on while you were there? Um, yes. Um, well, I, I chose to go to Ghana um, because I, I was given scholarship uh, <laughs> in with. After I, I joined um, uh, Akrofi Christian Institute, I learned under the feet of um, Andrew Wolves, Kwame um, Bediako, Yeri Bediako, and Jonah Zuma, and other well-known professors. So I was able to see um, firsthand how they engage the culture with theology, how they talk about African issues in their classrooms, how they help us to go down to the roots, how they um, they they themselves uh, are intentional about listening to people who sit on the pews in in the church, and they also taught us to to make time to listen to others and also to make every effort to get out of the classroom and engage the community. Mm -hmm. So Kwame Bediako also uh, taught us to pray. I mean, to pray um, meaningful prayer, you know, not, uh, and, and also to be very close to the Lord, to read the scriptures and to be close to the community we serve. So those are the things which I learned. Because in Africa, prayer is very common. People pray spontaneously. People pray, uh, I mean, and also they share the scriptures with others. Uh, in Ethiopia, when we were growing during the Dirk regime, uh, everybody was able to preach and teach. Uh, when you go to visit others, if you go to people's house, they would give you the Bible. It doesn't matter if you are ordained or not. So you were expected to know how to share the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So this lay ministry was quite common. So if we knew the Bible. Yes. We knew the Bible. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for that, Sibley. I Tigus, I, I need to come back to you because I'd love to ask you about how you relate theology to being on mission, because that's what we're kind of talking about here is being on mission. And you're obviously engaged in your culture and in your country, but what led you to want to study theology and what's theology got to do with mission? Um, because I love to read books and then, um, you know, I start to question a lot of questions on my faith and on the things that I follow and the things that we do at the church. And I keep asking a lot of questions and I hardly find a person to answer that for me, even though they tried to, but it was not as um, the level that my mind wants to. So um, in order to explore more, I went to theology school. That was the, the first uh, entry point for me. Unlike the, the tradition that we keep on saying theology will detach you from the everyday life, but for me, uh, the first thing that I found is I fall in love with my Bible after I go through the theology. And I start to really understand who Christ is, not the religious Christ that I keep on following, you know, keep on going in Sunday after Sunday and pray after prayer 
but now it starts to resonate for my mind. Uh, and then it reached to my heart and then I start to see things in a different way than I used to see things. And even I start to understand my culture more clearly than before, because now I know it, whenever I see bad things happening around, I'm not going to judge this or that because I know it's the fallen nature or the fallen world. It is all about devil um, because nobody, the devil doesn't want the kingdom of God to expand, you know? So I got this deeper understanding and then I start to see the economic sphere, the political sphere in a different way. Um, so I keep on saying, you know, this is how you can be light in every sphere. It's not just being sitting in the church. You can be light in the marketplace and expand the kingdom of God. But in order to do that, while you're in a marketplace, you know, the marketplace connects with your mind. Um, so you need to understand what you're saying. And theology really helps me in the marketplace to let them understand what I mean. So I believe in the NGO world that we're just fighting the economic injustices. So injustice is all about what God doesn't want, you know. So mm. wherever I go, I say like, hey, I'm expanding the kingdom of God. So that was quite an enlightenment for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's wonderful because you know we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul, and the heart includes the mind, as it is in the Gospels. And there is, and Paul also talks about taking captive the thoughts of our mind. That there is, we need to be able to think clearly from a biblical worldview, don't we, to actually understand what's going on in economics and politics and in the world, because these are spiritual realities. It's 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 not just that that's the secular world and the gospel has nothing to do with it. It is God's world, uh, and the truth of the gospel and the understanding of the Bible has to affect all of it and therefore impact our mission. And it it sounds like you you get that, and you're actually very much putting it into practice. But now, um, I was going to state the obvious here. You are both women. And in fact, uh, Seble, you were the first woman to receive a PhD within your denomination, as I understand it. Uh, that's the largest denomination in Ethiopia, the Kalehewit Church. Uh, and I was going to ask you, you know, why does that matter, um, that you've got a doctorate? Uh, how has that connected to mission in any sense and particularly what does it mean that you as a woman have a doctorate and are engaged in teaching uh, and indeed in leading and teaching other women and I'll come to the same question to you in a moment Tigis but first Seble. Yeah thank you it's very important to train women uh, because God calls both women and men it's as simple as that I remember the story of one woman who was burning with passion to serve the Lord. And she she uh, reportedly asked her church leaders, what do I do with this gift of the Holy Spirit? It's not given for me to cook food, you know. So this gift comes from the Holy Spirit. The calling comes from God. And women, as much as men, should be equipped in the way to use their, their gift. And secondly, women in our churches are majority. In, in the Ethiopian Aleut Church, women are uh, 52%. So because of that, um, because of that, women should be trained because the majority is women in our churches and to, to reach those women, to serve those women, we need uh, trained uh, women. But again, uh, when, when women see me as um, trained PhD holder, uh, occupying a higher position at the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology. Just the sight of me encourages more women to aspire to do uh, higher studies. Because as you know, um, it's not easy for, for us to study. Because at home, we work full-time. And outside of home, we're expected again to work full-time. Uh, traditionally, um, in Africa, Maine, when they come home, they tend to rest, take a break. For us, um, you know, we resume what we have started at home. So we don't get to rest. So it's not easy for women to study and work. And um, that work-family balance has always been a challenge uh, for women. And when women uh, want to study or engage in any other uh, professional career for that matter, sometimes we are 
kind of ask to choose between our career and family, then we tend to choose our family because we want to hold together the family. And if the mother is absent, mm. fathers are not usually present in traditional uh, homes. If the mother and father, both of them are absent, then the kids uh, would not be taken care of. So it's a difficult uh, decision uh, for, for women. There's another area, of course, of life in Ethiopia, which you are personally involved with, uh, which is where some very harmful traditional practices particularly affect the lives of women and girls. Uh, And it's an issue that we are aware of in the West, of course, as well, but is very prevalent there in Ethiopia, which is female genital mutilation. And you have been active both in advocating against that and in teaching against it. And I wonder if you'd like to say something about that work and what level of success or opposition you've had and and how that is going. Please tell us something about that. Yes. Yeah. um, Thank you. Um, I started engaging in um, the work of um, stopping female genital mutilation as I was uh, doing my PhD, and initially I was asked by my school. Uh, then I was working, uh, I was a faculty member at the Evangelical Theological College. They asked me to, to engage because they wanted a female to, to participate. But once I started working, I saw the need, um, and I also was able to go back and think of the stories I know from back home because I come from a community which um, practices uh, female genital mutilation. So I was able to go back and think of my cousins and my relatives and the suffering they passed through, things which I did not initially take time to reflect on. So the pain and the suffering, especially choosing to suffer silently because nobody would would listen, all of that uh, mattered. So I... I gave all of my energy to to that work. But I was many times asked, what are you doing here? Are you not a theologian? You know, because sometimes people think this is for the government and the non-governmental organizations or charity organizations engaging in stopping female genital mutilation and other harmful traditional practices is usually left for the government, other organizations. And people started asking me, but Sabla, you have to, you are being trained to teach and preach the word of God. What are you doing here? Are you engaging in these issues? You know, it's like diverting my attention to something else and leaving behind my calling. So you can see the divide between the secular and sacred right there. What is considered as sacred is teaching and preaching the word of God. Apart from that, Everything else is for others to do. So it was not easy for me to to talk about this. I remember once when I went to train university students, uh, they expected me to preach. And the moment I started talking about FGM, some of them started walking out of Mm. the building. And I said, I mean, we are not here to to hear about this. Uh, we, We came to hear the word of God. So it, it was not easy uh, to show people that this is yeah. the word of God. God cares for our totality. God cares for our soul and body. God cares for the flesh and and the soul as well. So this dualistic thinking uh, is still rampant. And we want to focus on teaching and preaching and reaching to the soul, uh, but then leaving the flesh uh, or the body out yeah. of it. So it was it was a big challenge. You sometimes wonder when people say, we're here to hear the word of God, not about that. Well, what Bible are they reading? You know, do they ever read the prophets and uh, the things that God has to say about those kind of issues? I, it sounds to me like both of you would agree with the uh, the statement that comes in the Cape Town commitment. You've probably heard of the uh, the, the document of the Lausanne movement of Cape Town 2010, there's a whole section on men and women uh, in partnership in mission. And the the final paragraph reads this, we, we encourage churches to acknowledge godly women who teach and model what is good, as Paul commanded, as he did in Titus, and to open wider doors of opportunity for women in education, service and leadership, 
particularly in contexts where the gospel challenges unjust cultural traditions. We long that women should not be hindered from exercising God's gifts or following God's call in their lives. End quote from the Cape Town Commitment. And I think it sounds to me like you would both agree. I can certainly see you nodding. I wonder whether uh, we could ask this question. The church, Christianity in Ethiopia, goes way, way back. We've said that. It goes back long before the conversion of Europe, uh, before the gospel even reached Britain and Ireland, certainly even before the continents of North and South America were even known about uh, to those in the in the biblical world and the African world. So what do you think the church in Ethiopia, with all that history and that length of service and faithfulness, what has it got to teach us in the West? And I, I speak, obviously, as a Westerner. What can we learn from the experience of our Ethiopian sisters and brothers? Yeah, I think with all the limitations and um, challenges the church is passing through, um, with all the difficulties and shortcomings, we don't give up on the church. Um, People in, in Africa are quite religious. We are religious. Uh, and we want we may change churches, we may go to different church, but we don't abandon religion altogether. When we encounter challenge, we may go to another church. So I think the West can learn this from us, not giving up on the church, not giving up on the faith altogether. When we see people misbehaving or mismanaging or failing to uh, properly teach the word of God, conduct their lives, abandoning the faith altogether uh, should not be an option because God does not change. And finding other uh, another healthy church uh, should be an uh, option. Thank you. Thank you, Sebley. Tigis, do you want to add something? Um. Uh, one thing that was in my mind, people really matters here than the task. And partly I found it really hard, um, but at, at times I found it really useful because at the end of the day, whatever we're doing, we're doing it for others. Even though we, we are educated, we have money, we open a, a business, at the end of the day, we have to sell it for other people, you know, unless in other words, we cannot get it. Even in academia, you teach for others. Yeah, even though you have a knowledge, unless you give it, it's not going to help. So I started to realize that it's all about people. When Christ came um, so that the others, people, can have life. And I think it's something that the world needs to learn. At the end of the day, it's all about people. That sounds to me like an important lesson that you yourself have had to learn because you, you, you seem to me to be a very task-oriented person that, you know, you want to get things done. You, you are an achiever, <laughs> obviously, uh, and yet you are, you know, holding on to this truth that people matter more than tasks uh, and relationships and you're seeing that modelled within your church mm. and your small group. So that's encouraging to hear. What can we be praying for in terms of your lives in the immediate future? Perhaps, Sebley, you would go first. Yes, thank you, Chris. Um, I we would appreciate prayer for um, our nation uh, because we the nation is uh, struggling because of ethnic conflict and all. We know it's uh, it will be over by God's grace, but we appreciate the intercession of the saints all around the world. Pray for us, support us, and please speak on our behalf um, because there are different groups uh, and parties which want their way. And uh, we appreciate your prayer for, for Ethiopia as a nation. And as, as a family, um, please give thanks to the Lord. Our children are growing. Uh, my husband is quite supportive. And he tells me that he is not just here to support, but also he wants me to actively do things. Uh, yeah, so um, we have a good relationship and I'm grateful to the Lord and the testimony uh, is seen in how I am able to, to, to do things, how I'm able to travel and serve uh, widely. And my, what I am envisioning uh, for um, 
my future um, as I serve at EXT and also in my church, I also want to, uh, I was elected as the country uh, coordinator for Ethiopia for the circle, for the circle of concerned African women theologians. We don't have a strong um, link here in Ethiopia. So I want to, to, to establish that. Tigist is part of that. And now I am bringing on board women. So I want to establish a strong circle in Ethiopia, then we would have an opportunity to talk about issues which are very close to our hearts, support other women, fight harmful traditional practices together, uh, serve in our churches together. Women really need uh, support. We usually are very good in supporting one another, praying for one another, crying together, lamenting. You know, The church does not give us space to lament. Uh, we are not allowed to express our dissatisfaction, anger, or sorrow. So we don't usually have <clears throat> space because when you do that, you uh, you would be told, uh, you know, it's it's unbiblical to do that. Go home and submit. You know. So because we we need that space to lament, uh, I would suggest I would kindly ask the church to give women space to lament. You know, say the burden is too much. I don't understand how you are handling us and how you are interpreting and applying the scriptures. I think the church also should support us in that way. Um, so that the circle would give us space for that and to publish, disseminate. That's what I, I want to do. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So just to repeat that, that was the Pan-Africa Circle of concerned women theologians. Yeah, it is, did I get that right? Yes, it is the circle of concerned African women theologians. Uh, yeah. Thank you. That's that's great, and and that 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 cry of the heart to be <laughs> permitted to lament. I mean, again, I wonder what Bibles do people read? I mean, there's so much lament in the Psalms and in Jeremiah and in Job and even in the lips of Jesus. So, uh, yes, it, it is thoroughly biblical to do that. Tigist, uh, what, what's next for you and what can we pray for? Um, the next step, um, I'm just thinking because I'm so much involved with the use and use is part of my passion and vision. Um, I am about to finish writing a book about for the youth, focusing on their next, how they can live, you know, supporting them in Amharic. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the next big achievement that I'm going to have is to publish that book, which I assume uh, will happen in the next two months, God willing, and then to be more focused and then to make my full-time job with the empowering of young people. That's why um my next step is going to look like um, I'm just still praying. And your prayer is so much needed, um, for sure, for our country, especially for the younger generation, so that God can really uplift um, the minds, uh, awaken their minds of the younger generation, and then they can be able to see the bigger picture than, you know, to to be able to see whatever is in their com around. And, you know, as we're really pushing to empower the younger generation, uh, we do really need your prayer for those who are ministering the younger generation, because literally we're just few in number. And also for God to awaken the church leaders and the church and even the governments so that they can be able to see the better and the best things for the, for the generation as well as for their community and for the nation at large. You know, unless God really opens our eyes and open the leaders' eyes, the church leaders and the politicians, it's not easy. So we really need your prayer to open the, our political leaders and church leaders and influencers' eyes so that they can be able to see the bigger picture and the benefit of um, the nation and to expand the kingdom of God. Thank you, Tigist. So I've been talking with uh, Dr. Seble Daniel and Tigist Galagle from Ethiopia. And it's been a pleasure to be talking with you. And thank you so much for sharing with us. And we will certainly be praying for those things that you've mentioned. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for your time. The 
that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and were blessed by how God is lifting up leaders like Seble and Tigist, who in turn impact their communities for Christ. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.